You're listening to episode number 80 of the Tailwind Coaching Podcast. Welcome to the Tailwind Coaching Podcast, where it's all about smart, efficient training so you can crush your cycling goals. And now, your host, Coach Rob Manning. All right, welcome to episode number 80 of the Tailwind Coaching Podcast, the only podcast on the internet that makes real science real simple. I'm your host, Coach Rob, and I've got a great show for you today where we're going to talk about Criterium racing and training tips. But first, I've got a couple of announcements for you. The website, the Tailwind Coaching blog, my online training plan store, and of course, the episode show notes receptacle is all available at tailwind-coaching.com. To make sure you don't miss any of the new content on Tailwind Coaching, and of course, to get training tips, tricks, the occasional exclusive discount code, and more in your inbox, head on over to the Tailwind Coaching newsletter and subscribe at tailwind-coaching.com sign up. If you want to share that with your friends and help them get some more information and keep them up to date when new podcasts are released and new articles are released, share it with them as well. Now, if you need to get hold of me, you can contact me at coachrobdc at gmail.com or at coachrobdc at tailwind-coaching.com. You can follow me on social media by heading on over to the website, and you can look for the About option in the menu on the upper left-hand corner of the website. And, of course, if you enjoy this podcast, I'm going to encourage you, head on over to iTunes and rate the podcast five stars. The more five-star ratings I get, the more it helps me to move up the ranks. The more I move up those ranks, the more people get exposed to it, and the more this information gets out there. And there's nothing more that I enjoy than watching somebody enjoy riding their bike and using the information that I give them to enjoy riding their bike a little bit more. Remember, I don't charge for the Tailwind Coaching Podcast, so if you do enjoy what you hear and you want to give back a little bit, consider doing some of your Amazon shopping through one of my affiliate links. It costs you nothing, and of course it does help support the show with each and every purchase that you make. Um, links for that and the iTunes uh, rating will be in the podcast show notes, which you can find at tailwind-coaching.com slash 80. 80 will be the number of this podcast. And of course, for you regular listeners, there is, of course, my podcast discount code, which I will, again, remind you at the end of the show, but of course, podcast 10 to take 10% off any of the training plans in my online training plan store. Right, now with that out of the way, let's get to the meat and potatoes of today's show, and that is going to be Criterium Training and Racing Tips. And of course, before I get into Criterium Training and Racing Tips, I should probably tell you what a Criterium is. Well, a Criterium, or a Crit, is a short circuit race. Now, here in the U.S., most of the races that you will find on your calendar are going to be criterium or crit races. Uh, That contrasts to the traditional point-to-point road race, which many of you are going to be familiar with from things like the Tour de France or the Tour of California or the Giro d'Italia or any of those kinds of races that you may see on TV. Typically, those races are stage races. And those stage races are usually contested in point-to-point road races. Uh, You start at point A, you race to point B, and whoever crosses the finish line first uh, is the winner. Now, criteriums, especially because they are the most dominant kind of racing here in the United States, are a short circuit race. That means that you are going to contest a race over 
X number of laps on the same course. Typically, that course is a circuit of around a mile, um, and you're going to race for either a specific amount of time or a specific number of laps. Um, Criterium races typically race anywhere races tend to be about 45 minutes or longer. Uh, Sometimes they go up to an hour and a half, depending on how advanced a racer you are. But essentially, you're going to start out and they will say 45 minutes. And after maybe five laps, four or five laps, they get an idea of how fast the peloton is going. And you'll find a lap card come up on usually at the start finish. And that'll tell you how many laps are left to get you to 45 minutes or an hour or an hour and five minutes or an hour and 10 minutes or however long your race actually is. The circuit that you're racing over is going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of a mile, mile and a half. Um, And it can feature anything from four flat corners to six corners, eight corners, um, hills, little climbs, sharp little climbs, anything goes in a criterium. Really, a criterium definition is simply a short, fast circuit race. Now, these things are really prevalent in the U.S. because they're fairly easy to put on. You only have to close a certain number of roads or a certain space, very infrequent that you have to have police supervision compared to something like a road race, and they're good to watch. They're easy to watch. Um, If you're a spectator and you have somebody who, a spouse, a family member, a friend racing, you will probably see them 8, 10, 12, 15, 20 times. You can see them race more than you would in a regular point-to-point race. And that's really appealing for people who want to watch this kind of thing. Uh, They are a fast-paced, exciting race that really rewards your patience, your tactical acumen, and a really strong physical presence, a physical endurance. And of course, if succeeding in something like this is one of your main goals, you need a few specific training um, inputs, a few specific training impetuses, impetusi. You need a specific training stimulus in order to make this work. So the question is now, you're sitting there going, all right, well, this this crit thing sounds pretty interesting. What do I have to do? What kind of fitness do I need? Well, as I talked about in my time trial, uh, my time trial trip uh, tips and marginal gains and all that kind of stuff, you need fatigue resistance. Um, you need endurance. You need flat-out strength and the ability to spin the pedals. However, crits are a little different than a time trial. Um, the nature of a criterium is a stochastic effort. Um, a lot of intensity followed by a lot of rest, followed by a lot of intensity, followed by a lot of rest. There's not much in the way of steady, smooth, threshold power type efforts compared to a time trial, for example. So you need that explosivity and you need the ability to repeat those explosive efforts over and over and over and over and over again. So Now that you know what a crit is, and you kind of have an idea of what you need, let's get into the nitty-gritty of what you need to put in that criterium training plan in order to make that specific adaptation happen. So, you know what the crit is, you know what it's about, you know how it's raced. 
A criterium training plan is simply not a case of adding VO2 max intervals to your typical weekly riding. There's a lot more to consider in a criterium training plan if you want to be successful racing these types of events. Sure, you're going to need plenty of endurance, you're going to need some VO2 max capacity, you're going to need some repeatability, but there's a little bit more finesse to it than that. And of course, the first thing that any criterium plan needs, in fact, really any training plan period, is muscular endurance. Again, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. If you've listened to my podcast, if you've read my blog posts, you're going to know I will hammer this point home. I will drill this point home again and again and again until it is burned into your brain. Muscular endurance is the cornerstone of your training. All right. I have talked about it so many times in the past. In you know, I've talked about it in terms of group rides. I've talked about it in terms of gravel rides. I've talked about it in terms of time trials. In terms of just going out and riding. It's no different for you, the Criterium Racer, who's listening to this podcast, all right? Muscular endurance is, once again, the key to resisting the fatigue that sets in over a long, hard effort, all right? I'll say a little bit of background on this, of course, if you haven't listened to my previous podcast, the more times you ask a muscle to forcefully contract, the more you're going to fatigue some of those muscle fibers, right? Muscles are comprised of fibers and fiber bundles. Subthreshold, you don't need all of those muscle fibers to cause a muscle contraction. As you start to recruit more and more of those muscles, you start to use more and more energy, all right? The problem here is the more that you have to recruit those fibers, especially a large percentage of them, the more they will, some of them will become exhausted, once a fiber is exhausted, it can no longer contract efficiently. When a fiber can't retract, contract, excuse me, not retract, when a fiber can't contract efficiently, your body has no choice but to recruit additional fibers in order to do the same amount of work you're asking it to do. And of course, the more fibers you increase, the more glucose you eat up, the more metabolic waste you create, the more lactate you create, the less creatine you have in your muscles, the less instantaneous energy, ATP, creatine phosphate, etc., etc., you have in your muscles in order to fuel them. And of course, as you fatigue more and more and more and more of these fibers, eventually they start to go a little bit wonky. They start to contract, but not release. Um, eventually you start the, essentially if we want to get into the physiology a little bit, bit of this, when you ask a muscle fiber to contract, um, an electrochemical signal is sent to the muscle and fil uh, filaments, a thick filament and a thin filament, they slide past each other. And then once they're actually gripped and contracted, another electrochemical reaction occurs, which allows them to release. As you fatigue a muscle, those electrochemical reactions, uh, which are dependent on calcium ion, um, flow across the muscle cell membrane simply cannot happen fast enough. So these muscle fibers slide past each other, they contract into a pulled position, and they can't let go. Um, now if you ask a contracted muscle to contract again, and it can't let go, that's when you end up cramping. Alright, so 
Muscular endurance prevents not only fatigue, but cramping, all right? So by putting those muscles under a constant tension, especially at a really high workload, a workload that's above and beyond what you would typically use, right? So walking up the stairs is a certain workload on your muscles. If you walk up 100 flights of stairs, that's a lot of tension on those muscles, but it's at a workload that your body is generally used to. Sure, you're going to be tired, but the chances are you're not going to cramp. You're not going to fatigue significantly. By putting your body under a higher workload than it's normally used to, you can train those fibers to become more fatigue resistant than they would otherwise be. That'll also prevent them from cramping because your body is better able to use a certain number of those fibers to make that contraction happen without having to draw in the whole muscle and fatigue the whole muscle. You follow me? It's a lot of science in there, but the basic gist of it is you need to practice getting tired in order to prevent yourself from getting tired, right? So, adding muscular endurance to a criterium training plan, you want to be doing multiple intervals per week. Those intervals need to start around 20 minutes or so in length per session, and the total time under tension for each one of those sessions should be at least the length of an average criterium in your category. And what does that mean? Well, if you're doing, say, 20 minutes in length, that's what you're starting at, right? You're doing an interval for 20 minutes. Well, you need to be doing at least two of those intervals in any given session if your average cat four criterium is 40 minutes, right? If your races are 45 minutes in length, you need to aim to do a couple of days a week of muscular endurance training, and each one has to total 45 minutes or more. You can break it up into two by 25, three by 15, uh, four by 12, five by 10, it doesn't really matter. As long as you're hitting that total time under tension, at least what your criterium time is going to be, all right? Aim for those lower cadences, that 65 to 75 RPM. And of course, if you wanna double up on your fitness, you can sort of jump into a sweet spot or threshold type interval while you're doing these muscular endurance intervals, right? So you get double the bang for your buck. And in fact, of course, if you're doing threshold or sweet spot intervals, it makes sense to be doing muscular endurance intervals. Why? Well, because most of your crits are going to be raised somewhere around or above that threshold and sweet spot interval. So why not take the opportunity to get some intensity but built into those muscular endurance intervals as well, right? Now, in addition to muscular endurance, I also talked about my in, in my previous podcast, which would be podcast number 79, tailwind-coaching.com slash 79. And of course, in one of my previous uh, podcasts on raising your functional threshold power was two keys to raise your functional threshold power. Um, the t- main topic there was raising your VO2 max capacity, and that remains true as well. Raising your VO2 max is a necessary part of raising your functional threshold power. And of course, you're raising your functional threshold is also a key to being a successful criterium racer. All right. So in order to build that functional threshold, 
what kind of intervals do you have to put into your criterium training plan in order to make that happen? Well, criteriums work like this. You're racing a crit. You're going to have to go over your threshold in order to close a gap, in order to sprint out of corner, or in order to move up through the field. Once you've done one of those things, whether you've closed that gap, or you've, you've managed to clean out the corner, or you're, you've hit the front of the pack, or near the front of the pack, we'll talk about that later, then you soft pedal, and you recover. And then you do it again. And you do it again, 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 and you do it again. In a four-corner crit, you may make an acceleration like that anywhere from four to eight to ten times per lap. Per lap, right? Now, if you're doing a 45-minute crit and it takes you three minutes to do a lap, you're doing 15 laps. So you could be making upwards of 100 to 150 different efforts in the course of any typical crit. Now, I'm not talking about a professional crit, not even close. I'm talking about your average cat four criterium. You continually make high intensity moves and then you soft pedal and recover. All right. Now, by raising your VO2 max capacity and the power that you can produce in those VO2 max zones, all right, you'll be able to handle those red zone moments a little bit better. You'll be able to handle those punches, those accelerations, those increases in the pace, and then you're going to be able to recover a little bit better. So, for example, if you do fine at 110% of your threshold, but you simply can't handle a move that goes off at 120%, you're going to get popped. You're going to get shelled. You're going to get spit back through the group, and game is over for you. All right. So not only do you have to work on raising the bar on your VO2 max, you know, you have to raise your VO2 max so that your functional threshold power has some room to grow, some room to flourish. On top of that, you need to work the endurance at those intensities. And that's where these VO2 max intervals come in, right? If you can do three minutes at 120% of your threshold, that's awesome. That's the upper end of your VO2 max intensity. And that's, that's a great thing to be able to handle. However, you have to be able to do it for more than a few times, right? If you can do it once or twice, that's fine. That's great. You might survive the first two laps. If you can do it five times, you might survive the first six laps. If you can do it ten times, you know, ten times three minutes at 120% of your threshold, there's a good chance you're going to survive a lot longer than the guy next to you, right? Who's going to be the guy who's sitting there at the end of the race and able to contest a sprint? It's going to be the guy who has VO2 max endurance, not the guy who has the biggest power in the sprint. No, 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 no. So you can only sprint if you're actually there at the end of the race. You have to have the VO2 max endurance to go hard, maintain it, back off, and do it again, over and over and over. Right. So in order to train these, you need to do repeated intervals above your functional threshold power. Right. I add intervals such as eight minutes at 110 percent of threshold, five minutes at 115 percent of threshold and three minutes at 120 percent of threshold at least once a week to my personal training. If I want to do crits, some of my athletes that actually focus specifically on crits, they were doing two and three days 
a week of this kind of effort. They were putting in tons of training stress on these kind of efforts because they had a weakness in this specific part of their training as part of their fitness. So anywhere between one and three days a week, varying intensities and varying interval lengths are key in order to build that VO2 max in order to raise that capacity and build that VO2 max endurance. Now, once you have that VO2 max endurance, once you have that VO2 max capacity, your threshold is climbing, your VO2 max is up there, you've got some decent endurance. That's only building the base of the pyramid, right? VO2 max threshold and muscular endurance are big part of the base of your pyramid for being a good crit racer. You really need explosive power, explosive efforts. Remember a few minutes ago, I talked about that typical crit scenario, right? That typical crit scenario was one where you accelerate out of the corner, you rest, you accelerate out of a corner, you rest, you accelerate out of a corner, you rest, you push it hard to move up the side of the field. Once you get to the front of the field, another corner, you accelerate out of that, you push hard to get to the center uh, up the side of the field into the front. You hit another corner, you accelerate out of that, there's a small climb, you have to punch over the top of that. There's a constant need for the ability to apply force and power quickly. All right, criteriums are simply fast races with a ton of explosive efforts, right? If you want to be able to handle these kind of efforts, you have to train your body to do that, right? You have to train your body to put out big power almost on demand at any point during the race. It might be the first lap. It might be the last lap, right? You have to be able to put out that big power at any given point whenever you are called upon to do it. Otherwise, you're out the back. You're gone, all right? You missed the chance to make that move, all right? That means in order to get that kind of explosive power, you have to train your zone six and your zone seven efforts, those are the zones that allow you to create power on demand, all right? That kind of power requires a lot of force production, and it requires it in a very short amount of time. And on top of that, you need some level of endurance at those really high intensities. Otherwise, you're going to get popped off the back when the peloton really punches it, right? So to complete that kind of training, you have to add those zone 6 and zone 7 intervals in there. For zone 7 work... I lean towards track racing. Track racers are awesome at applying explosive power. If you've ever watched a sprint, a track sprint, like a two-up match sprint, these guys are amazing. They'll go from almost a dead standing stop to almost full gas in the blink of an eye. It's a beautiful thing to watch. And granted, they have the slope of the track uh, on their side and they have years of experience, but there's nothing that says you can't work on those similar kinds of efforts. So number one, add track start repeats, all right? Those are going to be sprints in a big gear from a near standing start. Just like those match sprinters who are almost stopped when they punch it, basically you're going to coast down to almost a stop and then you're going to stomp on those pedals and rev it up 10, 12, 15 seconds. That's about the max you're going to get out of that. All right. What else you can do? You can do track sprints. 
These are the kind of things that you would use in a points race or in a scratch race. So where you are sprinting from a in a huge gear, but you're sprinting at a higher speed. All right, you're coming off a 15, 20, 25, 30, 35 mile an hour effort, and you're really punching it on top of that to try and get ahead. All right, now those kind of efforts are really taxing on the body. All right, I would typically add three to five of these during each real high intensity day you have in your program, up to twice a week. Um, if you can really handle a lot of workload, you can bump that from three to five to five to seven, seven to ten efforts per session. But always be real careful. These are really, really taxing, really difficult intervals, and but they will help you build that explosive acceleration that you really need to close gaps, latch onto breakaways, um, get away from the field, etc., etc. Or, of course, in that final sprint, right? Now, once you can lay down that kind of power to close that gap or to make that gap, you need to be able to hold on to that effort for a little while in order to make it count. All right, it's great that you can hit 40 miles an hour for 10 seconds, but if you can only hit 40 miles an hour for 10 seconds and then you have to soft pedal and peter out, that's not going to do you any damn good now, is it? No, I didn't think so. You're going to be, you're going to be out the back, right? That's where the zone six and seven endurance comes into play. For endurance in zone 6 and 7, I typically like to add 1-minute intervals around 150% of functional threshold and some 2-minute intervals somewhere in the neighborhood of 130% of functional threshold in order to teach your body to maintain power output for a longer period of time. As you get more, uh, more adept at these kind of efforts, you can actually combine these kind of efforts. You can combine a track start type effort where... You come to a rolling stop or you know, rolling almost a stop. You're down at two or three miles an hour. You punch it and accelerate for 10 seconds and then hold on to 150% of your threshold for another minute. Or, you know, you're, you want to do a rolling sprint. So get yourself two minutes up at 130% of threshold and finish it off with one of those zone seven track sprints where you just slam it into a huge gear and just punch it looking for that few extra miles per hour all right it's a great way to combine a couple of different skills and build a little bit of race type effort into your training as well so we've gone through muscular endurance we've gone through some of those vo2 max and those zone 5 efforts now we got to talk about of course, we've gone through the explosive stuff. We've got to talk about some neuromuscular efficiency. How do you have some gas left in the tank in order to hit that final sprint and actually do something in that final sprint? Well, as I've talked many, many, many times, muscular endurance and neuromuscular efficiency are really two of the keys of your fitness pyramid. If you go way, way, way back in my, in my podcast archives and my blog note archives, I talked about some of the keys to building off-season training and muscular endurance and neuromuscular efficiency were two of those keys. You have to be able to turn the pedals efficiently if you want to have any energy left in the closing laps. And that, of course, is one of the keys to being a good crit racer is being there in the end. Now, these neuromuscular type intervals are what is designed to make you more efficient. Uh, they help you cope with changes in pace, Without having to shift or stand, they help you moderate your efforts when you're within a peloton, when you're pushed out of a peloton, when you're drifting back through a peloton and you need to grab a wheel, 
right? With good cadence control, it's it's almost a beautiful thing to watch. And I remember years ago when I was at the Tour of Somerville, I watched the Cat 3 race and I was in turn 2. Um, of course, I was, you know, drinking and supporting my buddies who were actually racing that day. And as I recall, that happened to be the year when I had a busted collarbone, but that's beside the point. Um, I remember watching the Cat 3 race. And out of that turn two, that turn two was a slight downhill left. I remember hearing tons and tons and tons of shifting. Right? People would just come out of that turn and chunk, 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 chunk. You'd hear gears shifting. You'd hear chains slamming into different gears as people accelerated out of the corner. I remember contrasting that with the pro race. The pro racers were so damn smooth, you almost never heard a shift happen. Why? It's because the pro racers are so much more efficient. They have such better control of their cadence. They can actually modulate their speed, even if they're going into a downhill corner, just by changing their cadence or applying a little extra force. So that's a good simple illustration as to how important your cadence control is and how different cadence control is between an amateur race and a professional race. So how do you get better, more efficient pedaling mechanics. Well, you have to add some neuromuscular conditioning to your crit training program. Add some single leg drills. Add some super spin drills to your program. Now, you can do these at pretty much any point. I love doing these during the base period, but I also love doing these during the build period because if you stop doing something, if you stop challenging your body, your body will get lazy. It will revert to what it's comfortable doing. If it's comfortable at 90 RPM and you're not practicing anything above that, it's going to be happy at 90 RPM. If you consistently practice taking your cadence through a range between 60 and 130 RPMs, you're going to have the conditioning to actually change your cadence on demand in any situation. All right, I love doing these drills, especially downhill with super spins. If you hit a climb, you're doing some muscular endurance work, you punch over the top doing like a zone 5, zone 6, zone 7 effort sometimes. Once you hit the back of the climb, just super spin it down. Crank that cadence up as fast as you can. Don't have to have a lot of tension on the pedal. In fact, you don't need barely any tension on the pedals whatsoever. But you do need to be able to get those legs spinning as fast as you possibly can in order to get that adaptation working. Right? Now, in order to really effectively change cadences and save a little bit extra time, you can also add some single speed work into your training program. Now, I talked about this in my previous podcast, which was time trial tips and tricks to help you be a little more efficient time trialer. And I talked about how single speeding work can actually be very beneficial in that respect. Well, the same thing remains true in a criterium. While you're not trying to stay at a singular threshold power or a sweet spot you know, level of training uh, stress or a sweet spot level training of power. That was pretty, that was pretty twisted up. In this case, you're not looking to stay at a certain power level. What you're looking for here is the ability to control your cadence so that you can maintain a single gear over any kind of terrain. As you climb, your cadence is going to slow down. You're going to have to put more force into the pedals. As you descend, your cadence is going to have to ramp up and match the descent that you're going down. 
right? That's a great way to teach you how to moderate your cadence and, of course, get either some sweet spot or threshold power work in at the same time. Uh, I've got a description in the show notes of how to do that as well as a link to my post on single speed training, so I encourage you to check that out. Um, and, of course, the show notes here, tailwind-coaching.com 80 to find those. So once we've got all of our main bases covered, one of the things that most people tend to forget when it comes to criteriums, and I've harped on this the entire podcast so far, is repeatability. You need to improve your repeatability and you need to improve your ability to recover while still pedaling your bike. It's really easy for you to just make an effort and then soft pedal in training. If you do that actually in a crit, you are going to get popped off the back so fast, your head's going to spin and you'll have no idea what just happened to you, right? So those crits are full of those short, sharp accelerations. You need to be able to make those, but you need to be able to recover in order to do it again while still under tension. That is the key to improving your repeatability. You have to be able to make your recovery happen while under tension. And the only way to do that is to practice it. And folks, I'm going to tell you right off the bat, these intervals suck. (laughs) These are the hardest intervals you will probably ever do. Um, What do these intervals look like? If you're going to add them to your training program, add them once a week, twice a week at the absolute most. You're looking at Tabata type intervals. Tabatas are Tabata-type intervals. You're going to work for about 20 seconds on at a maximum effort and then take 10 seconds of easy spinning rest. And then you're going to repeat that for 5 minutes, 7 minutes, 8 minutes, 10 minutes. These efforts are supremely hard. I'm going to warn you right off the bat. They are supremely hard. They're very difficult to complete. Another interval that you can complete, you can add more frequently than a Tabata-type effort, is an over-under type interval. And these intervals are really, really excellent, excellent, excellent additions to your training program because they simulate race-type efforts. I call these over-and-unders for an effort that has an equal amount of intensity and, quote, rest. You can't see the air quotes, but I'm making them right now. Or I call them zone five repeats. If the intensity is extremely high, but it's very short, the recovery is longer and it's a higher intensity recovery. So what do I mean by this? Let's take the traditional over and under. An over and under type effort is designed to bring you over your threshold and recover you under your threshold. Typically, when I prescribe these to an athlete, I'm looking to put them at somewhere like 110% of threshold for the over part and sweet spot level for the under part. Now, here's the key to an over-under. The key to an over-under is simply the work interval and the rest interval remain the same, and they remain equally balanced from one another. So, if you're at 110%, you should be around 90% to recover. If you're at 120%, at work, you should be about 80% recovery. So there's an equal distance between work and recovery with regard to your functional threshold. You follow? Now, if you're going to do something like a zone 5 repeat, and these are more specifically designed to force your body to recover near threshold from very hard efforts. My typical zone 5 repeats are 110 to 120% of threshold for 30 seconds. 
and you're going to recover right around threshold, 95 to 100% of threshold for about a minute to a minute and a half. A little bit different, a little bit different energy system worked, a little bit different energy system worked during the recovery phase of that interval. I'm going to tell you flat out, those zone 5 intervals, those zone 5 repeats are much harder to handle than a simple over-under because the recovery is so much less, right? If you're only recovering at 100% of threshold, you're still working really hard. If you're working at 90% of threshold, well, you can do that for a long time. There's a reason it's called sweet spot interval, and the reason why it's sweet spot is it's the sweet spot between being able to put out long blocks of it and being able to recover. So that 10% difference is really significant. But that improved repeatability come race day is going to be a huge, huge, hugely important part of your training and your criterion strategy come race day. Now, speaking of strategy, we've got to talk about the obvious here, and that's how to race a criterium effectively. I said it in the intro, I said it earlier in the podcast, that racing a crit is very much academic, all right? I like to say that racing a criterium is as much an exercise in patience as it is exercise itself, right? You have to burn matches in order to succeed in a criterium, without a doubt. There's no getting away from that fact. But when you burn them and how you burn them will actually take some mm, trial and error, and it takes a lot of thought and a lot of strategy, you want to be successful, I've got a couple of tips for you here so that you can learn how to burn those matches a little bit more effectively and make those matches count. Number one, stay near the front of the peloton. Right? If you're at the back of the peloton, life is going to be really hard for you. Not only are you going to be prone to crashing because some idiot in front of you is going to bump wheels or tangle handlebars and you're going to go down. All right, that's how I crashed back in 2015 and spent five days in the hospital. <laughs> Don't be like me, guys. That's the one time I'm going to tell you this. Um, stay in the top 15% of the field just for that reason. Additionally, if you're not even worried about crashing, you're going to spend a whole lot less energy because the accordion effect plagues the rear of the peloton much more so than it plagues the front of the peloton. What do I mean by that? Well, as somebody slows down for a corner and accelerates out, the guy behind him has to slow just a little bit more so that he doesn't hit the wheel and then has to accelerate harder. The guy behind him has to slow a little more and accelerate hard and so on and so forth back. Now, if you're the 30th person in line, you're going to slow down pretty hard and you're really going to have to punch it to get back out of that corner and get on the wheel. Don't do that. That's not going to do you any good. You're going to burn a lot of matches really quickly and get no gain out of it. So, you're better off being in the top 15% of that field so that you actually can make those moves without the accordion effect coming into play. You also want to avoid sitting in the wind. Now, of course, there's a caveat to this, and that is unless your team strategy dictates it. Most of the time, if you're racing a criterium, especially if you're racing a Cat 4, Cat 5, um, you know, 5, 4, 3, you're not going to be racing with a bunch of teammates. You're probably racing solo or maybe with one other person. Now, if you're not pulling for a teammate, why the hell would you be sitting on the front of the field wasting your energy? Let somebody else sit on the front of the field and waste their energy, right? 
If you're not pulling for that teammate, sit in. Wait for the moment that appeals to your strength to make your move when you are good and fresh from not pulling in the wind. All right, pulling the field along, yeah, great. You'll look great when they're taking photos and you'll be a hero to the guys behind you who swamp you in the sprint and throw down and you've got nothing left, right? So that brings me to my next tip, my next point, and that is have a plan A and a plan B and a plan C and a plan D and a plan E and a plan F. The phrase, the best laid plans of mice and men really applies, okay? Um, Always have a plan A, and I I'm trying to remember who it was. It may have been Mike Tyson who said, everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face. And then you just got punched in the face. All right, that plan A will almost never work out. Have a plan B already. And if that one doesn't work out, you better have a plan C. And maybe a plan D if plan C doesn't work out because down the line. Now, the easiest way to illustrate this is if you're racing with a team because you'll have different plans for each different racer. Uh, I remember specifically a circuit race. A circuit race is just a bigger version of a crit, longer laps. I think it was like five-mile laps instead of a mile. But I remember a circuit race I did years ago with like five teammates, and we had a plan to one of us was going to be set up for the sprint. Um, Actually, our main plan was we had a little tiny punchy guy, and he would go on the final lap on the final climb, and if that didn't work, then we were going to try to break away right after that and make a five-minute effort break away. If that didn't work, then we were going to you know, try and pull the field and set up for a field sprint. And if that didn't work, then the sprinter was going to try and surf wheels for the strongest guy on the opposing team, who, by the way, had you know, nine guys, and try and surf their wheels and try to pull out a win that way. And Surprise, surprise! We had like five different plans and we got punched in the face by someone who attacked in between plan A and plan B and it all went to shit. So if you're racing as a team, you're going to have multiple options. If you're racing solo, all those different strategies have to take into account a whole bunch of different things. Most of the time, they're going to be planned around your strengths and weaknesses, um, your plan A, if you are a really solid five-minute interval guy, your plan A might be to break away. All right. If that doesn't stick, your plan B might be to attack on the last climb. Uh, your plan C might be to surf wheels and hope for a field sprint. Your plan D might be to attack on you know the last 150 or the last 300 meters instead of taking it to a sprint. You know that. Whatever your strengths and weaknesses are will dictate what those plans, A, B, C, D, etc., will be. And if you're racing solo, one thing you need to really think about is you need to research your competition. You need to know who is successful doing these kind of races, and you need to find out where they are in the field and keep them close. Guys who win or consistently finish highly in standings in these kind of races are guys that are worthy of following. Now, the one caveat to that is if this guy happens to be a dangerous racer or, or he tends to be someone who's involved in a lot of crashes, you might not want to hang around on his wheel. Just, just something to think about. Uh, tip number five, brakes, covering brakes, making them, um, that's a work of art. 
All right, a well-executed break is a thing of beauty. Not only does it require luck and skill and precision, and it requires people to work together, but it also is a just something that you have to learn over time. All right. Of course, in terms of making a break, the best time to attack is when a previous attack is caught. So that guy comes back into the field. The field starts to slow up a little bit because they want to rest their legs a little bit. That's your chance to just gun it and take off. Nobody's going to want to chase that move because they just reeled in another guy. They just spent 3, 5, 7, 8, 10, 12 minutes chasing another guy. And hopefully you've been sitting in, you know, in the top 15% of the field and saving your powder, saving your matches, keeping your powder dry. And you can get out there. And they're going to look around and go, well, I don't want to chase that guy. I, I just chased the last guy. You chase him. That guy's going, no, no man, you chase him. I, I just did a bunch of... And that's your chance to get away. All right? If you think you want to go with a break, whether it goes at that time or a different time, there's a couple of things you need to keep in mind. You need to look at who's in that break. You need to know if that break has a chance of going the distance. If it does, you need to get up there. If you know that break isn't going to stick, don't waste energy trying to get there. If that break goes off from the gun, chances are it's not going to stay. It's not going to stick. It's not going to stay out there. You're not going to find the winner in that break. If that break goes off right after somebody is caught, that's a good break to hit. Even if it doesn't stick, even if you think it may not stick, that's a good chance to stretch your legs. That break has a lot more chance of succeeding than the one that goes off when everybody's fresh. You follow? So it really is an art, and it's really a racing intuition that develops over time. So don't be afraid to try things. And if they don't work, you always got that plan B in your pocket, right? Just like I said, you have a plan A, a plan B, and a plan C. If your plan A is to hit the brake and that brake gets caught, what's your plan B, right? Tip number six, know your sprint distance. This one is critical, and I can't tell you how many times I have watched racers fuck up a otherwise perfect race by not knowing their sprint distance, all right? It happens so frequently. In fact, it happens so frequently that it happens in the pro fields all the time, Go on over to Cycling News and read any race report, anything that comes out about a sprint finish, and I guarantee you somewhere in there, when they interview somebody, they're going to say, I mistimed it, or I went too early, or I went too late, or I saved it, or I didn't do this, or I was out of position. Know your sprint distance. From your training and from previous racing, you will have plenty of training to data to go through. I've got a post on how to do that. I'll link that in the podcast show notes. So... With all that data, you have no excuse for not knowing how long you can sprint, all right? And sometimes it's not even how far you can sprint, but how long you can sprint. If you can cover a tenth of a mile or 150 meters in 10 seconds, and that's about all you got, you know you have 10 seconds to sprint. You know you're a 150-meter sprinter right? If you can handle a 25-second sprint, you can go from 300 meters out, right? If you're a long drag race sprinter and you can put out huge power for 25 seconds, you can go from a long way out. If, by contrast, you've only got that 10-second window and you can accelerate like a freaking rocket in that 10-second window, guess what, man? 
your 150 meter mark is where you're going to launch. So you have to hold it. You have to wait until you're real close to that line. Now, as I mentioned before, if you can't sprint your way out of a paper bag, but you have incredible five-minute power, your best bet might be to take a last lap flyer. Right? If you know you can hold that power for five minutes, well, it behooves you to get an idea of how long those laps are. Well, I'm looking at my computer and I'm seeing we're doing three-minute laps. So guess what? Halfway down the back stretch, you should be looking to get off the front. You should be looking, waiting for that one break to get caught, for the field to just slow down, and you should launch yourself from that point and do your damnedest to stay away for that five-minute effort. Because you know you can't sprint. That's going to be your plan A. Your plan B might be trying, I don't know, try and surf a wheel and hope for the best. But if you know you're a five-minute man, that's going to be your move. All right? And lastly, let's talk about a little bit about marginal gains for criterium racing and training and a couple of other thoughts. Number one here, and this is one that seems very difficult for people to grasp, weight doesn't matter in a crit, all right? Watts per kilogram do not rule the roost in this application, all right? The more power you can put out, the better, all right? What will matter in a criterium situation is positioning, how efficient you are, how much power you can put out, and how you use that power, right? So it doesn't matter. The only time watts per kilogram is going to matter in a crit is if you have a small punchy hill that you need to get over. And I can damn well guarantee you the guys that have a higher watt per kilogram rating for a certain period of time, usually up to three minutes or so, are going to do better in that respect. But in a flat crit, it's all about raw power, baby. All about raw power. You make more power than I do, chances are you're going to have a better chance of winning unless I race smart. So not only is it about power, but it's about brains. And we talked about that already. Another marginal gain, a skin suit and an aero helmet. If you're serious about winning a crit race, if you're serious about sprinting the best that you can, that skin suit and that aero helmet are going to help you out. All right, you can save a couple of watts here and there. You can save a couple of watts by waxing your chain even for a crit race. And who knows? That might be the difference between finishing on the top of the podium and finishing just off the podium. You never know. Uh, but if you're really serious about it and you've got the equipment, a skin suit will give you arrow benefit. That'll save you a couple of percentage points. An arrow helmet might save you a percentage point or two. Another tip, it's not even a marginal gain, but it's more of a, a tip or a trick. Get yourself comfortable racing in your drops, all right? Get yourself comfortable really hammering in your drops. The drops or the hooks are the best controlled, safest place to ride from in any kind of race. By having your hands in those hooks, you prevent somebody from nudging up next to you and sticking their bars into that hook and crashing you out that is one of that's exactly how i crashed out back in 2015 guy in front of me got panicked was riding on the hoods guy came up next to him panicked he swerved into him because he wasn't protecting his bars he hooked him and down they went i went right over the top of him all right by having your hands in those drops you can actually spread your elbows out that'll help create space around you and have the simple act of having your hands in those drops prevents anything else from getting in there and knocking you off balance. So, 
get comfortable riding in those drops, spend extra time in the drops, be prepared to spend up to the length of your crit in the drops, right? Unless you are soft pedaling because you're popped off the back, you should have your hands in that safe, protected position, right? Riding corners, I did an entire post on cornering, all right? Cornering is really, really, really important, all right? Corners are where you will burn tons and tons and tons of energy if you are not paying attention. So ride smart. Focus on the corner. Focus on the exit of the corner, not the wheel in front of you. The wheel in front of you may may take a stupid line through a corner. Don't be that guy. Be smart. Save as much energy as possible, and you can swing back onto the wheel after the corner. Now, a quick note here, something you do not want to do is you do not want to dive bomb a corner. Do not cut over somebody's front wheel going into a corner just to get the apex. All right, that's going to be frowned upon. You're going to cause a crash and you're going to be just kind of a jackass. So don't do that. All right, know what's around you at all given times and focus on that corner and what is happening in that corner. All right, again, position smartly. Top 15% of the field, never in the wind if you can avoid it, unless it contributes to your team's tactics. Now, this is going to seem controversial that I'm telling you don't pull. I never said don't pull, all right? I basically said don't pull if you can avoid it. If you got to get on the front and pull for 10 to 15 to 20 seconds and then rotate off, you know what? You did your share of the work. Let somebody else handle the rest of it. Don't sit on the front and drive it, all right? A rotation is fine, especially if you're in a breakaway. If you're in a breakaway and you're not doing any work, the guys in front of you are going to knock you off the back. They're going to keep killing you until you fall off and basically drift back into the pack. Be prepared to rotate and be prepared to work, but don't pull if you can avoid it. That means when you rotate through, immediately pull off and swing back. You will have done your pull. Nobody can argue with you if you did your pull, right? Just be smart about it. Don't burn the matches that you don't have, and don't burn the matches if you don't have to, right? And finally, what I talked about in my time trial podcast was pre-riding. I'm going to tell you this. In the case of a criterium, pre-riding is a must. Absolutely a must. If you have to pre-ride it before the event and before the finish line is painted and posted, that's fine, right? You have to know what the course looks like. You have to know what the corners look like. You have to know what is in the corners. You have to know what's coming up. That course has to be burned into your brain so that you don't have to think about the course during race day. You want to think about what the people on the course are doing, but not the course itself, Now, if you had to race this, or if you had to pre-ride this course prior to race day before there was a finish line set up, if for some reason you cannot ride that course before you race and get an idea of what the finishing straight looks like, what the distances are, there's one critical thing that you must do before the race, and that is you have to determine your 100-meter mark, your 150-meter mark, your 200-meter mark, your 500 meter mark, all right? And you have to know durations that you can actually go from each of those marks, okay? And intensities. For example, 
I know myself, I am a 150 meter sprinter. If I go from 200, chances are I'm going to get beaten. If I go from 300, I guarantee you I'm going to get beaten. If I go from 100, maybe, maybe. I'm a 150 meter sprinter. That gives me enough time to accelerate and continue accelerating to the line without dropping off. So within 150 meters, I start my acceleration. I start my sprint. I my my speed is climbing, 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 climbing to the finish line, and then I cross, and then you're done. At 100 meters, I don't hit peak speed. At 200 meters, it's just starting to drop off. At 300 meters, my speed is tanking, right? So you have to know what distance, time and distance sprinter you are. So if you're a 150-meter sprinter at 10 seconds, that's fine. If you're a 200-meter sprinter at 10 seconds, that's fine too. If you're a 25-second sprinter and that's 300 meters for you, you have to know that point. So the point of this discussion here is you have to know your launching point for that final lap. You have to have a couple of launching points for two different options, of course, because you need a plan A, you need a plan B. So what are you going to do? Well, you're going to mark off your primary sprint for me. I'm going to ride that course. I'm going to find the 150 meters or 0.1 mile marker, and I'm going to look. I'm going to get a visual cue. If it's a mailbox, whether it's a telephone pole, whether it's a weird bush, whether it's a driveway, whatever it may be, I want a stationary landmark so I don't have to think. I just have to look, see it, and go. And I'm going to do that for 150 meters, and I'm going to do it for about 400 meters as well. Right, so I know what the timing is for each one of those. I'm going to make my mental notes. I'm going to mark it off on my garments so that I know beforehand, and I'm going to be ready to rock and roll. As those laps come through, I'm going to look at that object, and I'm going to remind myself, all right, driveway, 150 meters. Next lap, driveway, 150 meters. Next lap, driveway, 150 meters. Next lap, driveway, 150 meters. Four times. By that fourth time, I know in my head I've got the timing down exactly what I need to do. That last lap comes along. I don't even have to think. I see that driveway out of the corner of my vision. I go. And that's what you need to do and why pre-riding a criterion course is so critical. Right? So you know where to go without thought. Instinct is what we're talking about. Guys, I really hope you enjoyed tips and tricks I gave you here. I hope you enjoyed the podcast as a whole. For those of you who are regular podcast listeners and you made it this far, again, go ahead onto the website, tailwind-coaching.com. You can find the episode show notes at tailwind-coaching.com slash 80. You can find the show on Stitcher, on iTunes, and on tailwind-coaching.com. Podcast 10 for 10% off any of my training plans on my online training plan store. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. And of course, if you did, rate it five stars. Until next time, ride safe, ride strong, ride happy. Enjoy your criterium racing and your crit training. And I wish you the best. Keep the shiny side up and keep the rubber side down, especially in those crit races. And I'll be talking to all of you again really, really soon.